0: The horse and hound podcast hello and welcome to the horse and hound podcast i'm pippa room magazine editor at horse and hound and i can't believe this is the 10th episode of our podcast if you haven't listened to them all don't forget they're available still so you can catch up wherever you usually find the podcast in this 10th episode we'll be speaking to william whittaker he talks about moving back to england after some years based abroad and reminisces about childhood Christmas treats in this famous show jumping family.
1: It was our family Christmas treat every year when we were kids to go to Olympia. As soon as we'd left the year before, I used to look forward to it the year after.
0: We'll also be joined by our news team to give us the latest update on shows in Covid, plus discussions about horse welfare and how we keep our Equine friends happy. Finally, vet Ricky Farf, Far and Percy Equine talks us through problems associated with working your horse on hard ground which is definitely timely with temperatures forecast to move into the 30s on Friday this week.
2: Consider the biomechanics that is going on. Massive amounts of concussion trotting on concrete and that will have repercussions at some point.
0: So shorten your reins and let's get going. My guest today is the show jumper William Whitaker. William has ridden on British teams at the World Equestrian Games and European Championships and among his biggest wins are victories in the Hickster Derby and at Olympia. Hello William, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thanks Pippa. How are you?
0: I am well, thank you. I was just thinking earlier that the last time you and I were actually chatting face-to-face was in Florida just over a year ago and so different to the situation we're in now where we've got Covid and we're back in Britain. It seems like a lifetime ago.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? If you'd have said when we were sat at the side of the ring there chatting, if you'd have said a year in the future, how different everything will be, you almost wouldn't believe it, would you?
0: No, it's amazing. Like we were sitting there under that under that shelter because it was so sunny, and, and watching the class that you won. So that was a good uh, a good thing to happen during our interview. I remember. Yeah. And you're. Based back in Britain now, after a few years of working abroad. Just tell us sort of what your setup is now that, now that you're sort of back home.
1: Yeah, so now I'm based back at home in Huddersfield. Um, and really, yeah, I've just kind of started again from the beginning. I'm here at home, which is, which is very nice with my family, because the last sort of five years I've been here, there and everywhere, between Belgium, Germany and, and the U.S., So it's really nice to be back home permanently with my family and building up a new string of horses.
0: Yeah, and you're a father of three, aren't you? And have you had to do any homeschooling during lockdown?
1: Yes, we have. Yeah, yeah. A lot of homeschooling and it's been very stressful. I took my hat off to the teachers before, but now beyond all... (laughs) Beyond all imagination, you could I just do not know how they how they cope with so many children and do such a good job after um how difficult it was with, with Bella and Oliver trying to get them to do a little bit of uh, schoolwork every day.
0: Oh God, you and your wife Elizabeth must have had your work cut out and you've got your, your your even smaller daughter who isn't school age yet, Evelyn, she's younger again, isn't she?
1: Yeah, she is, yeah. Um took a couple of weeks to get used to it for the kids, you know, because they were used to obviously having to concentrate at school and when they were at home they could relax and, and play out. But but I felt once they got used to it and got into the routine that a couple of hours a day that's what we were doing, um, uh, they kinda of settled into it. And I think in the end they got they got to quite enjoy it. And so did I watching them watching them work and yeah, learn really, being able to do that with them.
0: Yeah, and in a way, a nice way to, to spend some time with your children, as you say, having been abroad.
1: That that was the thing as well. It was all, it all happened quite quickly from me, from me moving back to the UK. Then the coronavirus thing was still um, just starting to be in the news and stuff. And then all of a sudden, after sort of six weeks two months then it obviously it turned into a global pandemic and yeah with me being away for sort of five years it was in a way it was nice that I was kind of almost forced into having to spend time with him which was nice because you know what it's like when you first move home and everything's new and then you're having to start up a new team of horses you get that submerged in in what you do And I think with coronavirus coming about and everything kind of just stopping dead, it kind of really opened up that opportunity for me. Just Obviously, we still needed to to work and everything outside, but with there being no shows on, the horses had a bit of a break and that just gave the opportunity to spend time with the children and concentrate on their schoolwork. And after a few weeks, when I kind of look back, I really appreciated it as such.
0: Yeah not not terrible timing for you and tell us about your horses about the new string that you're building up who are the ones that you're excited about and the ones our listeners should be looking out for?
1: Um, So to be honest I've just got young ones at the moment I have got a couple of older ones in kind of on trial and stuff like that I've picked up a few nice young ones that I've been working with as long as the ones that I own myself or with with my family so really I'm still like I've not been to a sh- I've not since lockdown I've not been to a show yet we've started to get going to a few training shows the last couple of weeks so it, it's kind of a bit of a strange situation because I'm although I've had a bit more time to work on the horses at home as for going to shows, I'm still almost at the same point as I was before lockdown. If you understand what I mean, it's I'm at the point now where I feel like I need to get out to the shows to really find out what the horses are and and what they're like at the shows. And because it is, it's a different atmosphere at the shows and horses. Some horses get better for that. Other horses, it can sort of work in a negative way. So really, I'm still at the stage where I'm working with my horses and sort of looking to. Get to a few shows in the next month and really find out what what I have got in my string, really.
0: Yeah, so it's sort of time to to test some of the training you've been doing in a competition environment. Absolutely,
1: yeah, because I think you can train you can train as much as you like at home, but you still don't know what you've got until you get to a show in the ring with a course of jumps, and then you have a better idea.
0: And last year you were based with the Rushy Marsh team and you had the opportunity to jump in Florida and on the Global Champions Tour circuit. Can you tell us a little about what that was like and sort of what you learned from that year?
1: It was it was fantastic. I'd never competed in the Winter Equestrian Festival in Florida before and that was a fantastic experience to compete there. Um, just really just to see how it works how it, how how different the the routines are out there and although it's all similar but different in in so many ways um and it was great that I, I was able to ride some horses that were sort of at five star standard and then get used to them there in Florida working towards the sort of the global the global champions tour circuit for the rest of the year
0: Mm, and then, and, and then going on to jump on that, obviously very lucrative circuit. And what was that like? Sort of going to some of those those really glamorous venues and really competing at the top level.
1: Oh, it was it was a brilliant, fantastic experience. Again, something I'd not done before. Be on a global team, and I was interested to see how it would compare to sort of your your nations cups that I'd done a few of in, in sort of the the previous years. And it was it was very different. It was different different for your horses. You had to plan differently. It's great in the way that when you're in the position that I was then, where you, where I was not as high up in the rankings to get into some of the five-star shows, when you're on a global tour team, you're kind of guaranteed a certain amount of five-star shows so you can plan a bit more for your horses, which I found nice. But as for the shows, the shows were fantastic. I got to travel to some amazing places. The venues were brilliant and really competing against that quality of of horse and rider, week in, week out, it really made you basically bring your A game because you knew if you didn't, you were not going to stand a chance.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the competition is so hot on that tour and everyone's out to win. And William, you've been based in the US, you've been based in Belgium and Germany, and now you're back home in Britain where, where obviously you were based before. Looking at sort of those countries, and the different systems they have, what do you think are uh, sort of the various upsides and downsides of those different countries i know that's a big question but but what would you say were the major advantages of the the different places
1: well i've always like from a from a living point of view like england is home for me um it's where i've always wanted to be but the reason i moved to belgium in the beginning was i was just trying to trying to broaden my horizons a bit i was trying to get a few more owners and a few better horses in my string if i could and really just try something a little bit different from what I was doing at the time to, to basically see if I could improve. And I always like to think whatever I'm doing, as long as I'm improving, even if it's only a tiny little bit every day or every week, I don't mind that. But as long as you feel like you're improving and everything's heading in the right direction, then, then that's what I want. And at the time, I kind of thought to myself, sort of five years prior to moving to Belgium, I, I thought for that Timing and that period I was at in my career, I needed to do something a little bit different just to try and take that next step, to try and get those sort of next class of horse and get to the bigger shows a little bit more consistently. And that's why I made the decision to do to do what I did. Um, to be honest, from both living in America to Germany to Belgium to England, I found that there was pluses and minuses from every place you were at. Really. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it all boils down to if you have good people around you and good horses, you can make it happen from wherever, really.
0: Yeah, and just talking of some of those good horses that you've had, it was when you were in Belgium that you had the opportunity to partner out with Utamara de Kassin. And, and you had that great win in the World Cup um, qualifier at Olympia with him, which I know you said was such a career highlight for you at the time. Just diving back to that, what, what made that win at Olympia with, with that really great horse so special?
1: I think it was there were so many factors around the class. Like for one, from a personal point of view, it was it was our family Christmas treat every year when we were kids to go to Olympia and watch John and Michael jump. You know, and I used to look forward to that. As soon as we'd left the year before, I used to look forward to it the year after to be down at Olympia with all my you know all my cousins would be there and and we'd be down for the week watching all the classes and then most importantly the World Cup. And and that's what we did for years. And I remember I used to go to Olympia. Then I'd come home and I'd be practicing on my ponies, trying to do jump off turns like like John and Michael that I just watched John and Michael do all week. And and that's kind of how I grew up. And and it's one of the biggest classes in in the UK. You know we have the King George at Hickstead, and and there are other important classes. But I think like the World Cup at Olympia as an indoor event is is probably the biggest class of the year in Britain. From a young age, it always seemed like a very prestigious class. Um, at that point, I had already made the decision to to move from Belgium to America slash Germany to ride the Rushy Marsh horses. So that decision at that point had already been made. And that was inevitably my last show with Utamaro and the horses of Ludwig and Yasmin Creel. So when you look back, it didn't really play on my mind so much at the time, but when you look back and... And that was the last class that I rode him in. It was um, pretty good, really.
0: Yeah, not not a bad way to finish your partnership. And he's such a special horse who also gave you a, a taste of the championships as well.
1: Absolutely. He's yeah. it, been a, a fantastic horse in my career. And I really enjoyed my time working with Ludwig and Yasmin Creel in Belgium. We had a fantastic couple of years there together. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was a really difficult decision to basically leave, to leave them and, and to... And to take up the position at Rushy Marsh with those horses. And it was one that took a lot of thought. And really, I just felt like after that, although we'd achieved so many great things together as a team. uh, We'd obviously been to try on to the World Championships. And we'd been to Gothenburg, to the Europeans. And had some great results at five-star shows. And jumped on Nations Cups. Uh, the win at Olympia we all had something almost life-changing to take away from those couple of years that we had spent together and it was kind of you'd given them something back you know from whatever happened from that point on you could always say from those couple of years we won the World Cup at Olympia
0: yeah it's a nice thing to be able to say, and talking of those classes that everyone wants to win, you have been a Hickster Derby winner as well in twenty sixteen and and you won that class on Glenvadre Brilliant, who was sadly put down in May this year, and he was a pretty special horse for your whole family, wasn't he
1: yeah it was yeah it was it was really sad you know when he when he had to be put down um he's been part of the family for ten years now, and it really has been a fact it really was a family horse. Me and my two brothers George and james as had all rode him and had success on him and he was that sort of larger than life character in the stable, one that um, you know really had a had a presence, and all the staff and everyone here looked out for him and he did he gave he gave me and Jim massive career victories me the hickstead derby and and jim the the queen's cup and just for those, t- those two things alone never mind everything else he did for us you know we'll be forever grateful for that horse
0: yeah, great great horse for, for your family. And as you say, there's a couple of big wins for you and your brother. Finally, William, I don't know if a lot of people know this about you, but you rode at the Australian Youth Olympic Festival, didn't you, about 10 years ago, and you won a team bronze medal there. And that's a competition that happens on borrowed horses. Yeah. I feel like the Youth Olympics is something we don't talk a lot about in equestrianism, but uh, just with the, you know, we're missing the Olympics this year, so I'm going for any opportunity to talk about the Olympics. What was that experience like of Youth Olympics, borrowed horse? Tell us a little about that.
1: Oh it was it was a really fantastic experience um to go there to Sydney and I was surprised actually when I went how much had gone into the organization of the youth olympics because I I was lucky enough to go to Beijing as well to watch the olympics there and I went to London as well but more so Beijing because like London I just went to the equestrian venue but Beijing thanks to the world class program we were taken out there to sort of get that olympic feel if you like and there were so many similarities between the youth olympics and and the real olympics it really did give you that olympic experience obviously it's a little bit different with our sport because there's obviously horses involved the horses yeah were borrowed and the jumps were not as big as what you would obviously usually jump at an Olympics but on a whole the the experience the Olympic experience you got I felt was very very similar to the real thing
0: yeah that's really interesting and can you remember much about the horse you rode
1: yeah I remember him well yeah he was called the pacifier and uh <laughs> it was it was an ex-race horse and I remember uh and I remember <laughs> the day we had, we got there uh obviously a few days before the event and we had to go up <laughs> this one day to meet our horses. So I went up over to the guy and um, the guy was, uh, he said, uh, good eye mate. And I was like, hi, are, are you all right? He was like, yeah, he's uh, called the pacifier and uh, he is an ex horse, and he's been broken uh, three months, <laughs> <laughs> broken into show jumping three months. I was like serious three months and he was like yeah but he'll be absolutely fine like that and uh, anyway as you can imagine the horse was a little bit wild but uh, <laughs> luckily we only had one horse there so we could spend a bit of time getting to used to them getting used to them the next few days and yeah it ended up all right actually i was quite surprised with how the pacifier coped with the um with the format there he had plenty of blood anyway there were never, no shortage of blood coming off the racetrack. And uh, yeah, we we were we were good in the end. There was me, Dan Nielsen, Matt Sampson, and Louise Saywell and we managed to win a bronze. Yeah, which was great.
0: I could just imagine your face when you said they said he'd only been broken in for show jumping for yeah. three I was months.
1: Like, I was like, seriously? <laughs> I was waiting for him to laugh, and then you know I say, oh no, he's he's done a bit, and he was like, no mate, nope, that's him. Better give me a leg up then. <laughs>
0: I'm enjoying your Australian accent as well, That's would say. Uh, a good, uh, good story. No, really, really. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, William. It's great to have a chance to, to chat to you and uh, talk about some of those old memories and, uh, and the future and good luck with getting those horses out to some shows soon.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: I'm joined today by Eleanor Jones, our news editor, and Becky Murray, our news writer. Hello, Eleanor. Hello. And hello, Becky. Hello. Great to have you both along. What's been going
3: on this week with you and your horses? Uh, Eleanor, first off, what are you doing? Um, Not a huge amount. Uh, Something that will maybe link into what we're talking about later, but I don't seem to have been able to get into any shows.
0: Oh, that's intriguing.
4: We'll be coming back to that later. What about you, Becky? Well, I've actually just been catching up on yard chores. Um, We've not had much of a summer weather-wise here, so I'm prepping my stables for winter now. Oh, yeah. I did notice on the
0: weekend that uh, my horse is losing his coat quite dramatically. There's grey hairs all over everything across my parents' house. Um, So I think he is also prepping for winter, maybe winter in Connemara (laughs) rather than Surrey. But um, I'm I'm a bit like, no, there's still a venting to do, matey. There's no no coat losing yet. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, aside from that, we're of course going to talk about what's in the news Uh, we're going to start with you becky this week we're talking about covid19 once again what's been going on this week
4: well with the sport opening back up and more riders are competing internationally again and that includes the canadian show jumper eric lamaze who was recently at a show in belgium now, he put up quite an impassioned post on social media about his experience at one of these shows. And one of the things he mentioned was how disappointed he was with the lack of riders wearing masks while walking the course and around the showground. And um, he said it's the responsibility of the riders that FEI and show organizers take pre- precautions if we want to keep these shows going. And of course, we've been following
0: sort of the guidelines and rules in Britain very closely. These international shows are under the auspices of the FEI. What are they doing sort of about the COVID situation and what are their protocols?
4: Well, they introduced a new policy at the beginning of July for enhanced competition safety. Um, This provides show organisers with a toolkit for planning events and it requires them to complete a full risk assessment in advance of that show taking place. And if shows don't comply or if riders don't follow the rules at a show, what would happen? If the organisers don't do this risk assessment, they do face the show being removed from the FEI calendar, and for riders not sticking to the measures set out by organisers, they could face disciplinary action. Mm, So it is quite serious
0: that, you know, that that show could essentially cease to exist as an FEI competition if they they don't do the right thing and, and riders could no longer be able to compete. Becky, it feels like COVID has become quite an emotional subject. There are all kinds of views, you know, if you just have to look at social media to see that some people think lockdowns are too strict, some think they're too lenient and we're coming out too quickly. What are your personal views on this story and what's been happening?
4: Well, I think I do agree with Sir Eric and, and the FBI that it is everyone's responsibility. Um... You know, thinking about here in Britain, if we don't act responsibly and follow the guidance, we can't expect things to remain open to us. Indeed, in Scotland here, competitions still remain off entirely. And I know the governing bodies are working hard here, but as individuals, we all do have to do our bit, whether that's wearing masks or isolating when told to do so.
0: That's an interesting one, isn't it? Like I, uh, you know how it is at the moment. I coughed twice yesterday morning. Went, oh my god, have I got coronavirus? And then you sort of think, if I did have coronavirus, like who would I have to who who would I have to put down on that form? You know, who have I seen in the last two weeks? And you know, you kind of think, oh, I wouldn't want my friends to have to self isolate because of me. But of course, that is the only responsible thing to do, isn't it? And meanwhile, as you say, we have had sport restarting in Britain for two months now, which is unbelievable that we've been back out with sort of the very start of sport coming back in, in England, not so much in Scotland and Wales. But we have been speaking to the governing bodies these couple of weeks as well about that restart and sort of reviewing how it's going. What have they been saying?
4: The feedback has generally been very positive and people do seem happy to be back out and are actually preferring some of the protocols, uh, such as pre-entries and also the concept of arrive, compete and leave again, rather than, you know, hanging about all day.
0: That's going to be, I think, a real positive to come out of this. And there's also so much demand for entries. uh, Harry Mead's column in today's magazine also touches on this and he's written about the fact that it's good to see British Eventing being flexible about allowing extra days, being more flexible than they've been in the past so for example Aston Le Wall's had over 2,000 entries I think it's a record for a British horse trials and they've been allowed to add two days to their fixture and to have six consecutive days of cross-country which isn't isn't normally permitted Eleanor I think this is what you were alluding to earlier when you said that, it, that you haven't been able to get out competing
3: yeah so obviously I had a we went to the three-day show at Kiso that, and that was brilliant but there isn't much going on in Kent where I live at the moment and so there's there's Fowbridge in East Sussex but we tried to get into that sort of with about 10 days notice and the cast classes were all already full um, which is no doubt because they aren't able to have as many people under the new rules but for someone who's used to you know waking up one morning and deciding I'm going to go to a show today <laughs> it's all meaning we have to be very much more organized um, if we want to go to shows but I'd I, like the new rules too i like being able to know when i'm jumping you know having had someone in the warm-up to do the fences i think it's brilliant
0: interesting that you mentioned felbridge there they've got a combined training event in uh, 10 days time that i want to go to and i've been so freaked out by this entry situation that i actually entered it about a week ago which is much earlier than i'd normally enter an unaffiliated competition but i was really keen to get in so i've already got my entry in for that
3: oh that's brilliant
0: yeah i'm out at dressage this sunday as well my first first competition since uh since March, I guess, since the lockdown came in. So I'll be able to update you all next week on, uh, on success or otherwise in the dressage arena. Mm-hmm. Um, Becky, thank you very much for your, your sort of insight there into the international scene, as well as what's happening in Britain. Eleanor, we're gonna come back over to you and talk about a different topic because you've been following some discussions about horse welfare and the way that our horses are managed. What's been happening
3: there? Yeah, so last week um, we ran a story, that, and this one was by Becky about uh, a study. Researchers, it was from the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies, and they've been speaking to experts like vets, trainers, welfare charities, to asking them to rank what they thought were the biggest welfare concerns fa- facing Britain's horses as a whole and individuals. And there were issues like delayed euthanasia and lack of owner understanding of pain, obesity, all that sort of thing. But one of the things that came out of it was thinking about the way we keep our horses and whether possibly we're keeping them in a way that suits us rather than what might suit them. For example, you know, in the winter and you think, I don't want my horse covered in wet mud, so I'll keep it in all day. Is that actually what suits the horse best? And then following on from that this week, we've been talking about, uh, you know, the old thing about how many horses are still kept in 24 hours a day seven days a week and you'd hope that would be fewer horses at the moment because it's summer and you know hopefully more are living out but there are still a lot of horses that are kept in all the time
0: Mm. and when i was looking at this story i noticed that the world horse welfare chief executive rowley Owers was talking about the three f's that horses
3: need can you fill us in on what they are yeah, so they're Freedom Forage and Friends, and I always have to have that list in front of me because I think forage is food, <laughs> um, and it's not that, it's forage. But it, yeah, it's about how horses' mental health is just as important as their physical health, and it's not just enough to say the horses are surviving, they have to be thriving, and they have to be you know, as happy as we can possibly make them. And one thing Roly mentioned, which we've reported on quite a lot, is this social license to operate which is essentially sort of the insiders and the public acceptance that what we do is okay and understanding horses needs is absolutely key to that
0: Mm, it's interesting isn't it? it's nice when i talk to non-horsey friends and i'll say something that happened with a horse and they'll be they'll ask me questions about the way we keep our horses or treat them or ride them or train them that just make you think again about something that's just how we you know it's how we do it it's how we've always done it and you think is that that's that's a fair question why do we do it like that and we were just chatting earlier in our news meeting weren't we about our own horses and whether they live in whether they live out problems with you know horses that aren't aren't friendly with other horses in fields or, or whatever and, and and why sometimes it's difficult to provide those three f's although as as horse owners that's what we need to strive towards
3: yeah and it's it's especially in winter of um you know you hear of so many places that say well we don't do winter turnout and you know there are calls to say well all right maybe you haven't got the right fields but could you have a sand pen or could you just allow that the horses that freedom out of their stable just for their mental health i used to have an ex-race horse who um when he was out was often in winter not amazingly happy to be out or didn't look like it but when he had to stay in with mud fever he hated it so Mm. it's it's all about you know their mental well-being of having the opportunity to move about if they want to
0: yeah, it's a, an interesting one. And something that as horse owners, we've all got to keep in mind and, and strive to to do better on and do our best for our horses. Finally, Becky, we're coming back to you when reminding people this week about the approaching deadline for microchipping your horses. If you live in Britain, the deadlines are different depending on
4: where you live, aren't they? That's right. Um, England, the deadline's 1st of October this year. Wales is 12th of February next year. And here in Scotland, the deadline's 28th of March next year.
0: Okay, and we all need to make sure our horse is a microchip by then. What if you have an imported horse or you are importing a horse? How
4: is this relevant to them? So if you've imported a horse from an EU country, you must send your passport to a UK passport issuing organisation in order for the details to be recorded on the central equine database. So, for example, if you buy a horse from Ireland and it has a green Irish passport, you need to be sending that passport off.
0: Okay. And can you just give us a quick sort of feel for why horses should be microchips, sort of aside from the fact that it's the law, but why is it a good thing if, you know, everyone knows who a horse belongs to and, and how many horses there are out there?
4: It's good for traceability and um, even things like disease outbreak, being able to contact horse owners and, of course, if horses are lost or stolen. I think it's all just good for welfare is what charities have been saying and hopefully it can help sort of reduce some of these problems we're seeing.
0: Great. Thank you, Becky, for reminding us about those deadlines. Make sure you've got your microchipping appointment in the diary if your horse isn't already chipped and that's all we've got time for on news today. So thank you both very much. Goodbye, Becky and Eleanor. Bye. Thanks. See ya. So now we go over to Ricky Farr from Far & Percy Equine with the week's veterinary advice.
2: So it's been a lovely summer so far Uh, but the ground has gone incredibly hard what does that mean for your horse i can imagine quite a few out of you there have seen lameness starting to become more apparent particularly after our our current restrictions that we've had everyone's come out started exercising a lot more um, and we are definitely seeing more lameness as a result but this hard ground out here um, it's all to do with biomechanics it's all to do with biomechanics and conformation Hard ground is going to exacerbate all sorts of conditions out there. Um, No one in their right mind, if they had shin splints, would go running on the roads. You know it's going to hurt. I think our horses are incredibly good and patient with us. uh, And they will go and exercise and we will trot them up on roads and do all sorts of things like that. Um, Consider the biomechanics that is going on. Massive amounts of concussion trotting on concrete. Uh, if your horse has certain deviations in conformation, so its hoof past an axis isn't ideal, if it's base narrow or base wide, if it dishes or plats, all of these things will mean that excessive concussion and load will come onto various parts of the joints and that will have repercussions at some point. So there are lots of things that happen within horses' feet speak to your farrier your farrier will probably be the first one to admit that if you try to pare the bottom of a horse's foot in the middle of the summer compared to the winter you need a very sharp hoof knife trying to cut into that frog and get a clean frog and cut down on the base of the sole to make sure it's nice and clean before it's paired out and all shod is really difficult and you'll blunt knives really quickly the feet dry out in the summertime now as the foot hits the ground the hoof capsule is designed to expand and contract very slightly, and particularly at the heels. In the dry weather, it doesn't do that as much. So when you don't have this expansion and contraction, you're going to end up with more concussion going up the limb. And that will, again, have repercussions on the rest of the joints. So then you say, OK, uh, what conditions are you going to see during, during the summer months and the harder ground? Well, you're going to see exacerbation of a degenerative joint disease. So arthritis, definitely. A lot of these cases you tend to find they actually improve with exercise. You give them a little bit of trotting. Um, they're really stiff when they first come out, but they get better after five or ten minutes. And those ones I don't worry about unless they persist. Um, bruising, rock hard ground, these horses tread on all sorts of things and they can get bruising. So people then put Pads and all sorts on them, and again, there can be a degree of this in the really wet weather. But even in the hard weather, you end up with a flint and everything that's been stuck out of the mud. In the mud, it normally it'd sink and move out the way if it was soft ground. But in the hard ground, it doesn't, and they can tread on it. So putting pads, the thing is with pads, although they're very good to avoid getting penetrations to the bottom of the sole, they affect the hemodynamics of the foot. The idea is when the foot hits the ground. The, the weight is displaced onto the bars, the wall, and the frog. The frog displaces. It pushes the digital cushion underneath it, which forces blood back up the limb. And you get this constant refreshed blood supply within the foot. Well, as soon as you put a pad on, you kind of remove that straight away. So you, you affect the hemodynamics of the foot. So although you're going to get bruising, uh, again, in the, in the hard weather, the, it's trying to find that happy medium between the two. Um, splints. Uh, If you've had horsey long enough, you'll always spot a splint or always recognise a splint. So normally a a cold, hard lump on the inside aspect of the the cannon bone on the front or the back, inside or outside, right next to the splint bone. What is it? Well, there's a tiny little ligament that sits between the splint bone and the cannon bone called the interosseous ligament. Normally when you get jarring or concussion or movement of that ligament, um, you can get additional bony proliferation around there. In addition, you can have any shocks to the periosteum or the lining of the bone, will, which will also result in bony proliferation. And then you get a splint forming. Splints are really um, really painful when they're first around. Um, you, you sit your thumb in it and genuinely that horse will let you know that it's painful. The downside to some of them is they do impinge on soft tissue structures as they get bigger. So again, splints are as a result of excessive concussion or trauma to the interosseous ligament or the periosteum of the bone. So avoiding concussion. What would I say about avoiding it all? Well, just don't trot up and down on hard roads. If, if it is hard, find alternative ways to keep your horse fit. Utilise a school. If you don't have a school, utilise hill work to improve performance, improve improve fitness. Pick your ground carefully as well. When it's really hard and undulating or adverse cambers on them, that's not going to do any good for the stability of that hoof. You're going to get a lot of torsional forces on it. So yeah, pick your ground sensibly. Um, Don't trot or canter on hard ground.
0: Thank you, Ricky. Next week, Ricky will be talking about what to expect when you have a horse put down. It's something none of us want to think about, but planning for this distressing time can make it easier when it comes. We'll also be joined by Laura Collett to tell us about Mr Bass's comeback to competition after injury and the horses who made her career. If you're enjoying the Horse and Ham podcast, remember to subscribe or follow in your app and please do rate, review and share the podcast. It helps spread the word. That's it from me for this episode. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.